Hi, this is Dr. Tiffany Kaplan, and today we'll be mapping food sensitivities on the 15-minute matrix. Welcome to the 15-Minute Matrix. I'm Andrea Nakayama, functional medicine nutritionist and your host. This is the podcast that brings you bite-sized insights and lessons on the clinical relevance of the functional nutrition matrix, the most important tool in functional medicine and functional nutrition. The matrix is so important not only because it invites us to stop and assess, but also because it reminds us of three very important factors in our care recommendations and outcomes. Everything is connected, we are all unique, and all things matter. Be sure to head over to this episode's show notes at 15minutematrix.com if you'd like to see today's topic mapped on a downloadable matrix to remind you of these critical aspects of care. Today on the 15-Minute Matrix, I'll be speaking with Dr. Tiffany Kaplan. Dr. Tiffany Kaplan is an Institute for Functional Medicine certified practitioner and owner of two functional medicine practices, along with her husband and partner, Dr. Brent Kaplan. Together, they help people dealing with chronic health challenges all over the world regain their health through their integrative approach. They're also the authors of the best-selling book, The Lupus Solution, your step-by-step functional medicine guide to understanding lupus, avoiding flares, and achieving long-term remission. And they are the hosts of multiple online health summits on the topic of autoimmunity, including their newest summit, Food Sensitivities and Autoimmunity, which they co-hosted with Dr. Tom O'Brien, and which we will link in the show notes. Dr. Tiffany, welcome to the 15-Minute Matrix. Thank you. Thank you for having me today. I'm so excited to be here. I am so excited to talk to you and particularly to talk about food sensitivities. I find a lot of our students in full body systems, as well as a lot of clients, are confused and they're confused by the differences between food sensitivities, food allergies, and even food intolerances. Can you speak into how food sensitivities differ from allergies and intolerances? Yeah, that's a great question because there's a lot of confusion when it comes to this, especially in the conventional model when we get people coming in and they're like, well, my doctor tested for food allergies and I, I don't have a, you know, I don't have any problems with food or they, you know, don't realize that there's other issues that could be happening. So of course we're familiar with allergy response. It's, it's an IgE reaction that the immune system has to a food. It's usually a pretty quick onset of symptoms. The reaction lasts on average two to three days after exposure to it. And it can be more severe. And then we have the sensitivity reaction, which is the IgG or IgA reaction. It's a delayed response of the immune system. So symptoms can come on hours to days to like a week after exposure to something. And that half-life is 21 to 23 days. So it's a lingering reaction. And it's not always quite as obvious as an allergy And then you hinted at also intolerance, intolerance meaning you're not breaking down something, right? So lactose intolerance, you don't have the enzyme to digest the milk sugar, for instance, right? So it's a problem with more of a digestive issue versus an immune reaction. But there's all these different ways that food can cause symptoms, can contribute to the problems that we're having. We see a lot of autoimmune patients that, you know, they're eating things that they don't recognize are part of the problem that's causing, you know, the the symptoms or the issues that they have. 
So it's really common. Yeah. And such a good explanation, Dr. Tiffany. I love how you broke that down and particularly how you talked about the differences in the response. I also love that you brought up allergists. It was one of my questions because we do see a lot of people coming in saying exactly what you said, saying Mm -hmm. my allergist said I don't have any allergies. And as you're defining, it's a different immune response. It's an IgE versus an IgG or an IgA response. These are of course, the antibodies that our body is working with. Can you speak more into what could trigger an IgG response? Yeah, food um, sensitivities really can stem from leaky gut, right? That's a big contributing factor when we have our gut membrane being too permeable. Now our immune system is getting more exposure to the things that we are getting exposed to, like food from our diet or external factors. And our immune system gets upregulated and starts to obviously try to protect us from these things that it thinks could be foreign. We also can contribute or can be related to poor digestion, maybe not making the mm-hmm. stomach acid, pancreatic enzymes, right? And if those food particles are getting into your gut undigested, they look foreign. And so the immune system, again, trying to protect you will form this immune reaction to that food or that substance as a way to try to you know, protect you from a foreign invader. Right. Yeah. And this is where the IgGs are sort of trained by our own exposure. So what are some of the antecedents and triggers? Are people predisposed to having more sensitivities, say, if their parents are sensitive in that way? Is a passing of these IgG antibodies through breast milk or through utero, what are the antecedents that might set us up for having sensitivities? Yeah, that's a great question. It really can come from uh, birth. It can come from you know being breastfed or or not breastfed from being born C-section. You know, it kind of sets up our immune system from the second we're born, or really even before that. But food sensitivities are something that can just be developed over time as well. You don't have to have a genetic you know, predisposition to react to gluten, for instance, or dairy, right. or something. It can be more common because those are just really inflammatory foods, but uh, you can develop it at any time because of stress or trauma or things that you go through that put your gut barrier risk of being too permeable, of having a heightened immune reaction, of having too much inflammation, too much stress in the body. So they can be you can, you can have a higher predisposition because of those factors, but it doesn't have to be that way. Right. So there's a lot of different triggers and they could even be other factors or exposures, stress, other things that can lead to that gut hyperpermeability that then activates the immune response that trains the body to be kind of over over responsive. Do I have that right? Yeah, absolutely. The immune system becomes hypervigilant because it's trying to protect you. It's like this mechanism that we have, but it it starts to confuse things that are not foreign or um, bad for us as being harmful. Like parts of our own body. This is what's happening in a lot of autoimmunity. We can see that there is food hypersensitivity or food sensitivity. And there's also then that attack on our own tissues or cells because the immune system, I like to think of it as confused. Would you term it the same way? Yeah, absolutely. It's again, it's just, it's trying to protect you. So it's becoming just overreactive to the little things. And there's a lot of mimicry with food as well. We know that like the gluten and protein 
protein, for instance, looks very similar to a lot of our tissues, like our thyroid gland, like our pancreas, mm-hmm. like our cerebellum. And so our immune system is smart. I think of our bodies as very smart, but it can, like you said, be easily confused because it's just in this like overwhelming hypervigilant state. And it's trying to do too many things at once, or when there's the permeability and there's way too many things coming through, it's going to error on the side of caution and start attacking everything versus being able to really distinguish what is actually foreign or harmful or bad for us. So it's just that hypervigilant state that it's it's overreacting to things. Yeah. So we have a lot of hyper going on. We have hyperpermeability. We have hypervigilance. Mm-hmm. So we can see that there might actually even be some behavioral connections here in how people are acting. If we think of the word hyper, let's kind of bank in the center, the soup of the matrix for a minute and talk about all the things we might see as signs or symptoms related to food sensitivities? That's a great question too, because a lot of people, when they're looking for food reactions, you're looking at just purely gut reactions, right? right. Looking for bloating and gas and diarrhea. And they're like, well, I don't have any of that. And, you know, my gut's it's fine. Yep. But majority of the time, like with my autoimmune patients, the pain that they're experiencing, the fatigue, the brain fog, the skin rashes, like mm-hmm. all those other symptoms that they're experiencing are really the outside what we can see from the food reaction happening because it's causing that inflammation and it's causing the immune upregulation. And so it, it shows up in so many different ways and it looks different for every person that it can make it really confusing. Again, kind of going back to what we talked about in the beginning, it's confusing to sometimes figure out food sensitivities because it's a delayed reaction. It's not always very obvious. People are looking for gut symptoms when really in fact it could be showing up in just their, their quote unquote, normal symptoms that they're having every day, right? We just kind of get used to how we feel. And it's not something that is obvious for us. Yeah. And sometimes I find that people are associating a symptom they're experiencing with their diagnosed condition. When Mm -hmm. in fact, if we clear the diet, if we clear it of some of the exposures that are uh, triggering this hyper response, we actually can start to see more clearly what's left. What's that process like in your practice? How do you do what we call clear the muddy waters? Yeah. And that's a great question. We always start with just going through a health history with somebody really getting to know kind of where these major stressors are coming from in the body. Because when we look at a person, we know that there are um, really common areas of dysfunction, like the gut, like having nutrient deficiencies, hormonal imbalances, adrenal problems, blood sugar issues, like just really common what we call the root causes of why the symptoms are happening or why the diagnosis, I guess, is happening, right? The diagnosis is a way to just kind of label all the symptoms and things that the person's experiencing. But we can't go after, you know, the diagnosis or the symptoms because it's not going to fix the problem. So we look at signs in their health history um, as to why these things may have happened. They've just been so stressed out for so long. Are they not sleeping? Um, We talk to them about diet and lifestyle as like a main you know, tools that we have to be able to fix these things. And we do testing, functional testing to see what's not optimal. Cause sometimes people don't, you know, feel the difference there. They don't know that they have nutrient deficiencies, for instance, right? Like everybody walking around is vitamin D deficient, but it's not something you necessarily feel or, you know, but it's so critical in being able to heal and repair. Right. So we do testing, blood testing or saliva testing or stool testing to see what areas that we think 
are probably the biggest areas to address for that individual, get a big picture of everything going on. And then we kind of start to peel back the layers of the onion, right? Just kind of work on the major factors first. And it does, like you said, kind of clear things up. Whereas now we don't have to go after 20 different things. Once we've cleared up the major the major players, we can start to get results without having to chase that diagnosis or that symptom. Right. And this is one of the places where I find testing can be a little tricky, especially if we do too much too fast. So if we look at the top food sensitivities and we start to remove those before we even do testing, we might see testing that illuminates so many things that somebody thinks, well, now I can't eat anymore. There's nothing left to eat. Whereas that likely tells us that there's more of a direction towards dealing with leaky gut or gut hyperpermeability. So what are the top food sensitivities that you've seen arise in your practice and even in testing? Yeah, that's a good point too. We always start with like an elimination reintroduction process before we um, do a lot of other work with the person. Uh, That's not something that they've explored and we don't do like food sensitivity testing per se with like blood work or anything until it's like a necessary step down the line if we have to. Um, So the main food culprits that we find over and over again are going to be the grains. They're hard to digest. They're super inflammatory for most people. Dairy, sugar, of course, nightshades actually are really common with, especially with my autoimmune patients, people that have more rheumatological issues tend to have a lot of issues with nightshades. Those are kind of the main ones that I find over and over again. And then there's sometimes people have problems with because they're eating way too many nuts or seeds or right. reaction to those or just things that they have way too much exposure to too frequently can be an issue. What about eggs? I see eggs in oh, a lot yeah. of autoimmune. Yeah, eggs are a big one too. I live here in Portland, Oregon, where everybody has like backyard eggs (laughs) so or chickens, chickens and eggs. And it becomes a real issue for them not to eat eggs because they're so attached to their chickens and eggs and harvesting their own eggs. So it's really interesting when we find that. That's a hard one for people too. I mean, when we tell them to give up their grains and their dairy and their eggs, they're like, well, what do I eat for breakfast? (laughs) You know, we take out a lot of the foods that they're eating on a regular basis, which is why they're a problem. Right, exactly. And we may need to do it sequentially and slow it down. I want to talk about these IgGs a bit more Mm -hmm. and really speak into both how they're activated and if there's ever an opportunity to quiet these fellows down because they're really prolific. And as you said, they're a bit more insidious, like the symptoms that can arise from their activity can last a long time, which confuses things more. So can you just talk us through a little bit of their activity? I have a quick story about that. Just personally, when I first did the elimination diet myself, and I had cut everything out for like six weeks. And when I reintroduced foods back in, I realized that my food reactions were like a week delayed. And it was very confusing to really connect the dots with everything. I would, you know, actually with eggs, for instance, I was reacting to them, but three days after I would eat them, and right. I was like massive pain and thought I was going to die. And then I like, no, it couldn't have been the eggs. And I tried to get it three days later. And it was like, oh my gosh. So um, common. We tell yeah. ourselves stories like not the eggs. It's not the eggs. Yeah. No, can't, <laughs> no, can't be my chocolate. That's probably my right. Egg, right? It exactly. Be. But it was just like that type of process. It was really challenging. And people go through that and it's hard. But 
the good news is like you can heal and repair from these things, right? You can you can fix the that hypervigilance of the immune system, get it into a more balanced state by addressing the leaky gut, by addressing the nutrient deficiencies, the microbiome, all of those factors that lead to why you are producing, overproducing you know, uh, IgG reactions to foods. Uh, and you can heal that process and you can be able to tolerate food sensitivities. Again, uh, usually down the line, sometimes it could be months after working on the gut. For me, it was like a couple of years and I could start tolerating things again. I was just going really slow with the process. But yeah, you can definitely heal from having these overreactions with uh, the IgG response or IgA response. Allergy is a little different, but Yes. Um, see that all the time. Yeah. And I, I think like you, Dr. Tiffany, I found that I could reintroduce things. I just don't eat them a lot. I call it, what's my path? What's my bike lane or shoulder for those who live on the East Coast and have less bike lanes on the side of the road? And then what's poison ivy, right? So there's yeah. certain things like gluten that for me are poison ivy. I just don't eat it. Like I wouldn't reintroduce it because right. I don't want the risk of doing so with my immune system, but there's things like eggs or even goat dairy that are in my bike lane. I can eat them on occasion. I'm not going to eat them every day. I'm not even going to eat them every week. Eggs I wouldn't eat on their own, but I might eat it in a baked good. And that I can tolerate. So it's that kind of finding that body intuition yeah. once we've done the internal healing so there is hope, right? With these sensitivities. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and sometimes it is coming down to what I call like rotating it in the diet, right? Like you can have right. it every so often. If you just don't overdo it, you're fine. But you also bring up an interesting point too. When a food is cooked differently, it does change that structure, right? When the immune system's reacting to a food, it's reacting to the protein structure of it. And when that protein structure is modify differently, it can look different to the immune system and have a different type of reaction. So like some people can have, like, let's say a runny yolk egg, but they can't have a hard boiled egg or mm -hmm. they have egg cooked in something, but not by itself. Right. And it can change because of how it is prepared or what it's combined with. Or I like to use the example of like pizza. Sometimes people can tolerate maybe a little bit of like wheat over here or a little dairy or a little tomato. But when you put all those things together, it's like, nope, not going to tolerate it. Um, so yeah, how you combine it, how you prepare it, it changes how the immune system is going to respond to it as well. Yeah. One of the things I always say is that dietary change is not a handout. And this conversation really underscores that reality because there's a lot of trial and error. There's a lot of clearing the muddy water. There's a lot of retesting and tracking by putting things back into the diet, certain combinations, being really tuned in. Dr. Tiffany, if there's anything else that you wish that coaches and clinicians just knew about food sensitivities that you feel like is drastically being overlooked in our care, what would that be? Yes, that's a great question. I think we tend to villainize food. And I think just overall, we need to recognize that there is no such thing as a bad food. Maybe mm. it's sugar. I would say that's <laughs> I agree. I agree. Food, you know, but I don't think there's really such thing as a 
bad food because everybody's body is different in how it tolerates things. And when we have resilience, we can handle, you know, having something in moderation here or there. Like you said, there's going to be some foods that obviously just don't work for that person, that individual's body, and they need to stay away from it completely. But what I think a lot of people go into um, the mindset of is they're like afraid of food or, mm-hmm. you know, they do an elimination diet and they think that that's a long term way to live is by cutting yep. out these categories of food, which are healthy for us. We need diversity. We need um, variety in our diet, all those phytonutrients and everything. We need it for our microbiome uh, in particular. We need it for all the nutrients Um to help our immune system and all those those things. So that's where I think people kind of get into the mindset of like, oh, these foods are bad. I need to stay away from them forever. But really just getting in tune with your body and how it's reacting to things and getting out of the fear of food mindset, I think is helpful and recognizing that something like an elimination diet is not meant to be a forever protocol. I'm going to highlight that for everybody. That is a really important point because we can develop fear of food and we can start restricting foods that are actually uh, contributing to deficiencies that create their own signs and symptoms and even diagnostic states. So really important to recognize that when we're looking at food sensitivities, any reaction to food, we have to do a two-part process. We have to look at the food but we have to look at what's going on in the body and help with that repair. So, so brilliantly said, Dr. Tiffany, thank you so much for joining me on the 15 Minute Matrix. Thank you for having me. The 15-Minute Matrix is brought to you by me, Andrea Nakayama, and the Functional Nutrition Alliance. Check out the latest in functional nutrition at functionalnutritionlab.com forward slash blog. The 15-Minute Matrix is produced, mixed, and edited by Rowan Bradley with production support from Natalie Merrill and the team at the Functional Nutrition Alliance. You can find episodes on all kinds of topics with more incredible guests at our podcast website, 15minutematrix.com. And if you'd like to be notified by email each week about our podcast releases, go to 15minutematrix.com forward slash notify. Also, please feel free to get in touch with us. We'd love to hear your thoughts, your feedback, and who you'd like to hear next on the podcast. You can email us at ask at 15minutematrix.com. 